their motivation for arguing about why privatization works is because they feel that it's it's a, just a universal phenomenon that it will regardless of where you go if you allow these you know sort of individualized self-maximizing forces to flourish you will create efficient innovative water services on the ground and the best way to do that is is privatization welcome to co-water voice We voice critical views and marginalize aspirations within the water development sector. CoWater is a postdoctoral research program funded by the European Union's Horizon 2020 Research and Innovation Program, Marie Skodowska Curie Action. CoWater examines conflicts over water resources and water territories and seeks to understand the conditions of possibility for turning conflicts into civil society co production. I am Pratimi Vidyatmi Putri, the University of Kassel in Witzenhausen. After some inactive months, I return with the fourth season of Co Water Voice to talk about possible radical alternatives to water service commercialization. The privatization trend, with its different forms of implementing policy, has definitely worsened existing conflicts over water resources and water territories, a topic that I have covered in the season two of this podcast. In this season, I have conversations to highlight some important concepts for understanding the background conditions of public service privatization, or why it was possible in the first place for privatization to happen worldwide. I think only through this understanding we can then imagine the conditions of possibility for the alternatives to emerge. In this season 4, I have discussions with David McDonald, Francisca Paul, Mangala Subramaniam, Margarita de Andrea, and Giuseppe Micciarelli, as well as Sirisha Naidu. Equally important, we also hear from Muhammad Reza Sahib, Irwan Shah, and many other Indonesian activists and scholar activists. David McDonald joins us in this episode. He's a professor in the Department of Global Development Studies at Queen's University in Canada. He founded Municipal Services Project and serves as the core director since 2000. Informed by social movements, labor unions, and community groups, the Municipal Services Project examines trajectories of privatization in several countries and the possible paths towards the alternatives that have emerged from these particular locations. His extensive publications have enriched the debates over public versus private service delivery, especially in water, electricity, and healthcare sectors. But he also locates these debates within the wider problems of urbanization, environmental justice, and uneven development. In this episode, we speak about the ideology of water privatization, as well as the future of water services and the central institutional and agential transformations that might shape this future. I hope you enjoy this inspiring conversation. 
David, thanks for joining me today. You are an important guest because for at least 20 years, you and your collaborators have extensively published about water service privatization and the phenomena of multiple efforts in bringing it back into the public hands. Also, through many other publications in the literature, we see different forms of state control are, are being enhanced to supposedly improve the water service provision. What we see in the water sector is part of a similar trend in other public service sectors, such as electricity and healthcare. Transnational Institute in Amsterdam, in their collaborative projects, have recorded that between 2000 and 2019, there were around 924 cases of remunicipalization of privatized services. And in addition to this number, there were around 500 cases of new public enterprises being established. I think your publications in this subject are informative in telling us that there are different rationalities that lead to this trend of bringing back basic needs provision into the public hand. Or in other words, why do actors help ending the privatization contracts? You know, we see many different kinds of uh, motivations no? from market uh, managerialism. This is what you're saying, state uh, capitalism, or even a very progressive ideology like anti-capitalism. No? But before we talk about these different rationalities, should we go back to some historical events to understand why they were in the first place some waves of public service privatization. Thank you very much for the for the invitation to uh, to speak with you. Yeah, so really we saw the origins of the most recent wave of privatization emerging in in the 1970s politically uh, with attacks on the Keynesian welfare state and and the notion that the the state is required to intervene, to stabilize economies, to generate growth, etc. This had actually worked reasonably well in, in the post-depression, post-World War II era, when, um, when, when capital actually was quite happy to have the state intervene and provide subsidies and capital for, for infrastructure development. But as with most capitalist developments, you get ebbs and flows and crises of accumulation and it, you know, private capital globally had had started to raise concerns about being squeezed out essentially of markets by uh, state investments uh, and, and state intervention. So we saw this sort of uh, slow but then rapidly accelerating ideological push to challenge the, the Keynesian welfare state. And one of the ways that first manifested itself in practical terms was through privatizing state-owned assets. And initially, it was some of the, the low-hanging fruit, um, airlines, uh, mining companies, things which could be quite easily chopped off and, and sold off um, in their entirety to, to the private sector. Um, and then not long after that, we start to see pressure on uh, public services like water and transportation and, and healthcare. Um, and those were a little more difficult in some cases to extract from broader state ownership because assets were integrated, you know, uh, in complex ways at the municipal and, and national level. And it wasn't, you know, a, a simple 
um, uh, sort of feat to try and and say, okay, we're going to sell off all of our water and sanitation infrastructure. So it took a little while to figure out the logistics of of how these things would be would be privatized. And and it's actually a really interesting kind of storyline to follow because we see the kinds of theoretical gymnastics, if you will, <laughs> applied to how do we actually introduce market-oriented competition in what is effectively a natural monopoly. Um, you know, nobody wants to build eight sets of sewage and, and water infrastructure systems. So, you know, when you, when you look back at, at the debates and, and ongoing debates, how you know, organizations like the World Bank continue to argue for the, the possibility for there to be private sector competition and, and uh, innovation in the water sector, <clears throat> it's it's actually a really interesting theoretical exercise to look at that. But you know, at its very core, of course, it's this argument that states are inherently corrupt and inefficient, and the private sector is inherently efficient and innovative. And so that sort of blind ideological commitment drove the first waves of privatization, uh, notably in the UK and, uh, and and Chile. And you know, those were the only two countries that really completely divested themselves and sold off their their water uh, sanitation infrastructure after that it was you know predominantly more the the French model of public private partnerships in in, in various ways um but uh so yeah it was a fairly kind of crude push in the 1980s on the behalf on the on the part rather of a big international business who, started to uh, complain about a drag on the economy and lack limited opportunities for investment. And they looked at things like water and healthcare and education and saw enormous potential for profits. And, uh, and that's effectively what has driven this wave of privatization for the last 40 years. Definitely, this is not a story of only Euro and the global North. I think if we, um, I just remember an older publication written by Alex Loftus and you in 2001 on the political ecology of water privatization in Buenos Aires that began in 1989. Uh, this privatization scheme was launched more or less in the same period when, uh, well, maybe some half decade earlier before Manila and Jakarta, uh, the utilities was also privatized. So here that we have witnessed a key role of IMF and World Bank and similar kind of other organizations in implementing this policy. So you have also worked in South Africa. I'm not so familiar with this context, but how... How in your study you have seen similarities and dif differences between the global north and global south, if the ways of privatization kind of uh, similar or, or different in, in, in its uh, policy implementation? Well, ideologically, it's exactly the same. And I always say to my students, what makes for a good theory is something that has some kind of universal application. And, and if it doesn't, then what does that mean as well? And this is, you know, sort of segueing or diverting here briefly into the sort of whole post-structural debate about, you know, are there universal uh, human values and human nature, et cetera. So the World Bank is very much couched in, in a universalistic framework that 
human beings are inherently self-interested, self-maximizing individuals. Doesn't matter whether you're male, female, white, black, tall, short, whatever, we all think and behave the same way and we're incentivized by the same things. And so whether it's Buenos Aires or Johannesburg or Jakarta, people that work in government are not incentivized in the same way as people that work in the private sector. And they would, you know, they pointed to what they saw as empirical evidence that publicly owned utilities uh, across the board were inefficient, uh, lacked innovation, uh, were corrupt, etc. And that the best way to do that was to unleash the, the natural universal tendency amongst humans to operate in their own self-interests and bring private sector uh, dynamics in, into water services, ideally directly through private sector's intervention. And so, of course, every context is different in terms of the institutional capacities and the kind of politics on the ground. And, you know, the World Bank and the IMF were, were aware of these things. And so, you know, the recommendations were slightly different in different places. Um, but, you know, their motivation for arguing about why privatization works is because they feel that it's it's a just a universal phenomenon that it will regardless of where you go if you allow these you know sort of individualized self-maximizing forces to flourish you will create efficient innovative water services on the ground and the best way to do that is is privatization and uh, and that's partly what makes it such a powerful argument uh, on their part and and makes it so seductive as well for for locals who say yeah you know we want to be part of this global wave and you know and in in some ways it's a kind of a democratizing uh discourse right that uh, there's nothing you know different about Buenos Aires or Jakarta you know they have the same potential as New York and Paris so um, you know, so it, it's a it's a very seductive kind of language that's that's employed, um, and uh, you know, but I think the the counter arguments are, are are equally universalistic, right? If it if it doesn't work in Paris, you know, it's probably not going to work in Buenos Aires or or Jakarta, right? So the same the same kind of universal universalistic structural problems with privatization uh, are are one of the kind of key counter arguments to this uh, this ideological push for privatization. When we talk about then the, the counter to this uh, privatization, well, we witness that the policy cannot, uh, the implementation of a policy, it cannot meet the promises, you know, like uh, the, the promises, affordable prices was not there, and the, the expansion of the services to the marginalized groups are not there in terms of the global south no? and then of course the the, the democracy uh, the participatory processes is not there but then if i now try we try to to look at the remunicipalization processes or the counter the counter waves uh, to this privatization massive waves in in europe i think there is a precedence you know like uh, okay uh, let's think about this previous um, the previous uh, period where there's a welfare state, uh, welfare institutions, let's go back to this 
kind of uh, lots of subsidy and, and and different different kind of social programs in global south you know this term of welfare uh, institutions or welfare state like we don't have it and also this uh, term of uh, rights to water is also kind of have a different meaning uh, in our everyday life so then if we remember this period when this privatization policy arrived argentina or or um, indonesia we just came from a authoritarian political regime so in a sense that the, the middle class probably like expecting more to this kind of market logic more tangible you know like this is like the more and more non-trusting our own state or government now in the period of even if the contract in Jakarta is terminated we still face a kind of a uh, big vacuum where where do we go and like what kind of reverence we should refer to. So, yeah, I wonder what would you suggest based on mm-hmm. your kind of study that have a quite a global look on this? Well, I'll, I'll start by saying that I think the, the criticisms of privatization are pretty universal. That, you know, whether you're criticizing water privatization in Buenos Aires or healthcare privatization in you know, Tanzania or you know transportation privatization in Norway that the the kind of structural dimensions of how capitalist markets work profit taking cutting of corners uh, you know uh, dropping of labor standards i mean th- these things are pretty universal across sectors and and across countries and so the anti-privatization movement did a very good job over the last 30 or more years in, in identifying those problems and, and demonstrating that they were, you know, universal. You know, not every single private contract has been terrible. I mean, you know, some have been better than what was there. There's no doubt about it. But generally speaking, you know, privatization has failed. It has not provided cheaper services. It has not democratized services. It is tended to marginalize the poor, you know, the, the list goes on and on. The The problem with that very effective universal anti-privatization message is it doesn't carry over very easily to, okay, we know what we don't like, what do we like? So what are the alternatives to, to privatization? And and as you know, there, there are many places in, in the global south which never had very good public services. And you don't even have to go to the global south. I mean, in my country, in Canada, if I speak to First Nations, Indigenous communities about, you know, trying to protect water, public water services, they'll say, what public water services? We're still boiling our water. We, you know, we still live in a colonial racist state and, we, you know, we don't have effective public health care and water and transportation. So, you know, it's not just the global south um, where this is taking place. And, you know, even even in the sort of so-called golden era of welfare services in in the North, you know, there was all kinds of racism and marginalization and, you know, poor gendered, you know, dynamics, et cetera. So, um, you know, going back is is not something we we really want. And that's not to say we shouldn't and and celebrate some of the um, enormous successes of, of the Keynesian era. And the hard work that many, many public servants have put into creating the public services that we do have. But if our only goal is to go back, you know, or forward to some kind of mythological golden era of of the welfare state, then, you know, we're, we're really limiting what we can do. Because, you know, even at their best, they tended to be very top down, 
bureaucratic, um, we know what's good for you kinds of, of service models that, you know, didn't deal with with climate change. They didn't deal with, you know, uh, some you know, the sort of racialized and gendered nature of services, et cetera. So I think, you know, the, 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 the best kind of discourse today is to disrupt what those things are and to try and seek, you know, well, what makes sense in, in this context? What, you know, what do we think makes for transparent and, and engaged and, and participatory kinds of, of decision-making? Um, what do we mean by equity and, and sustainability? And yes, there are sort of universal aspects to these things, but there's also context-based things, which are you know culturally and, and politically and to some extent you know geologically and, and geographically determined. Um, so it it does make for a, a much more challenging um, remunicipalization movement and and pro-public movement because. There are certain universal elements that we all want to fight for, um, but there's no sort of singular vision for what that looks like and, and how we're going to get there. And, and I think that the, the pro-public movement, as I call it, as opposed to the anti-privatization movement, the pro-public movement is, is still struggling with, with how to balance that need to have a cohesive voice that brings people together along with an appreciation of an understanding of the very different realities on the ground, where people are coming from and, and what they want to see as an alternative. What I take from you is that in this uh, movement to rethink how water and other public services should be improved, we need to also question the logic of modernity in a sense of scale of provision as well. I mean, how 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 much you see there's also a need to to decentralize the, the technological system. So we want to think of more sustainable model, yes. But at the same time, how then if we think of decentralization, like kind of more direct democracy, at the same time it's also difficult to kind of uh, control maybe in, in a sense that uh, to have a kind of a stick into um, this norm of uh, public provision or kind of state functions because then if there are different models how would you uh, benchmarking now I'm remember of your one of your proposal about this benchmarking uh, in terms of not in the capital logic but more in this kind of uh, maybe social uh, justice uh, social ecological justice. Well, one of, one of the things that's good about water services is that they are inherently local. Unlike, say, electricity, where you can produce electricity thousands of miles away and, and transport it, you know, relatively inexpensively and, you know, and then have it used at the local level. Water, because it's so difficult and heavy to transport, is is you know almost entirely produced and consumed locally, which means that it has a very local flavor to it. Um, and so it you know the potential is is always there for there to be more sort of local engagement uh, with decision making. Now you know what if you scale that up to a city like Jakarta, right? I mean. Yes, it's local, but, you know, we're talking, what, 15, I've forgotten Jakarta's population right now, but, you know, 
massive um, scale of, of decision making. And the average person is not going to be participating in decision making about Jakarta's water and, and sanitation system. And so, you know, how do you then democratize what is technically a local government service uh, in, in ways that allow voices to be heard, um, you know, particularly from low income, informal settlement residents, et cetera. Um, and, and that, you know, that's a kind of partly a political governance question, you know, do you create mechanisms to allow this kind of thing? And, and we know it's possible, you know, we, Brazil had, uh, had experiments with, uh, participatory budgeting that included tens of thousands of people, you know, there's debates about how effective those things were, but, you know, it, it's not unprecedented to have participatory engagement in, in large metropolitan areas, right? Um, and so that, you know, that's one way of thinking about it, but there, you know, governments at the national level often also shape policy at, at the local level. And you know, privatization would, was a good example of that. A lot of privatization came from uh, instructions from national governments and, and local people had no say over that. So if we're gonna keep these things in public hands, then we have to ask ourselves, well, what kind of public service do, do we want? And you know, one of the biggest uh, problems with this is, is not privatization, but corporatization. And the way that we've constructed water utilities as arm's length, publicly owned and publicly operated, but arm's length utilities, which are not always as accountable to uh, local citizens. And so the governance questions become more complicated and they're increasingly operated like private enterprises and managers are incentivized to you know, reduce their expenses, sometimes remunerated based on the financial bottom line of, of, of the, the water utility. And, and many of these publicly owned but corporatized water services are act just like a private company in terms of you know the way that they behave and the way that they measure their performance. And so you you know you mentioned that piece I wrote about you know how do we measure performance of a public utility? And so I think you know there's scope there for local uh, actors to say, well, you know how are we measuring the performance of this entity? you know is it is it basing its performance based on you know what its uh, financial losses and and gains look like or are we measuring it based on you know how many low income households have had access has it improved the quality of life for female headed households you know how long are people having to walk to collect water um you know what do the illness rates look like with waterborne diseases and those kinds of more nuanced forms of measurement we don't often see. And so I, I do think there's an opportunity for you know, more local engagement on that front to push water utilities, not just in terms of you know, having them participate in decision-making, but having them report in ways which is more reflective of, of what people on the ground want to see and, and democratizing the kinds of uh, information that water utilities give out to their uh, residents. 
Yeah, there are lots of homework to do. But I want to go back a bit now um, to to the, the earlier point about the logic of capital. And then uh, you also uh, wrote that if the empire would strike back. And we see that the private sector, the corporations, they, they're getting advanced way faster than the way we could organize ourselves or let's say civil society. I came across to a, a news in 2013 that the International Finance Corporation, a member of the World Bank Group, has arranged financing about 85 million US dollar to the Moya Indonesia. And so it's this Moya uh, Asia, you know, this is kind of regional players. Okay, so Thames Water Out uh, 2S seems to kind of not playing anymore in the region, but then come the regional national capital, you know, and they really know how to do it with the, inst- the political institutions. I mean, it's kind of a closer, let's say, uh, yeah, if you talk about the virus has copying more the DNA, it's kind of easier to be transplanted. And then I just wonder that, and at the same time, you know, we are, we are, we are activists, let's say, facing lots of afflictions here, afflictions there, advocacy here and there. It's sometimes like we cannot think properly what to do or kind of uh, consolidating ourselves. So how would then this terrain of, or let's say it's a global movement to kind of anti-privatization would also give a particular solidarity in in kind of, uh, yeah, go on beyond the national borders. I mean, who would advocate then this kind of benchmarking or a kind of a room for for progress in a different kind of uh, trajectories of of uh, movement, let's say. Uh, I don't know mm. if you get this kind of, because like, how, World Bank advocates like these good governance principles, for example. True that, you know, we have to fight a corrupt regimes, for example. Yes, through good governance. I mean, what is not good about it? I mean, how would you see um, kind of different small tunnels in, in a, a new a global solidarity movement or kind of? I think uh, as difficult it is, as it is to think and hear this, that it's, it's a kind of generational shift <laughs> and it's frustrating to think that because there are you know hundreds of millions of people around the world today without adequate access to water and sanitation uh hundreds of thousands of people a year dying from diarrhea related illnesses because of poor water and sanitation and so it's a very very immediate and uh urgent cause um but you know, it it's it's like the Titanic. It it doesn't turn around quickly, <laughs> and it took you know a generation to shift from that kind of Keynesian era, state-led, subsidized, although very problematic model, to where we are today. Shifting that back around in in alternative directions is is you know not going to happen overnight and further complicated by the fact that you know what we don't want is this you know one size fits all model either that you know what is going to constitute a successful democratic sustainable uh accountable water operator in a city like Jakarta might look different than than a, a city like Toronto or or San Francisco um in terms of you know the managerial capacity, the resources at hand, et cetera. Um, 
So, but there's also, you know, an inertia within these services themselves and a, a deep ideological shift that's taken place with, with managers in particular, who now, you know, it, it took a long time to get these benchmarking systems in place. Um, and, but they are now very much entrenched. And so even when you speak to your managers from utilities that have gone back into public hands, they, and because they, they were opposed to privatization, they continue to use the same benchmarking tools that they were using before. And, and because it's, you know, they also see efficiency in, in these sort of fairly narrow terms as, as important ways to measure themselves. And they also like to be able to say that they're more efficient than the private companies. And using those same, you know, metrics allows them to say, hey, you know, we we actually are more efficient than what than what the private company did. So there's a kind of you know political points that that can be scored on that front. Um, so it's it's going to be very very difficult to shift the kinds of uh, measuring tools and measuring expectations for you know how we we want to judge the success or not. Of, of new public utilities. And um, you know, I've had many conversations about these kinds of benchmarking tools with very senior utility people. And they all say, yeah, you're right. You know, why would we continue to use these tools which were designed for and by private sector interests? Why use those to measure, you know, a different kind of public service model? They get it, it makes sense to them. But they also all say, oh, my God, I don't know how we're going to create that. And, you know, who's going to agree to it? And, you know, do you use the same uh, measurement tools in Jakarta as you, as you do in Paris? And so, you know, it's, it's understandable that, uh, at, you know, at the same time that they're struggling just to make sure they have enough workers in place and they're fixing their pipes. Right. So the day to day, you know, realities of running a water utility consumes you know, 110% of their time. So, you know, do they have the time and energy and 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 the political capital to make arguments for alternative ways of, of, of thinking about measuring how we do things? So that's why I say, you know, these are kind of slow burn issues. Um, I think most people interested in alternatives to commercialization understand that, you know, if we're going to, act differently. We also need to measure ourselves differently. Uh, but I suspect it's going to take uh, many, many years before we even get a kind of serious, you know, conversation about this. And many more years after that, before we start to see some kind of, you know, concrete movement on this front. And then many more years after that, before we start to see these kinds of things being utilized uh, on, on scale. Uh, would you please uh, tell us a bit more about the role of labor unions within water utilities, within the movement, let's say, Europe, the North uh, America? What would be the dynamics in terms of the literacy also of how we go to improve some managerial and other technical aspects, vice versa, mm -hmm. political, technical? Um, well, certainly union leadership, public sector union leadership, uh, 
is pretty well united in its criticisms of privatization. There are, you know, unions that have supported privatization, unions that are concerned about what the impact of remunicipalization would mean for their members, et cetera. So there's, you know, it's not an entirely consistent um, framework, but generally speaking, the public sector unions are strongly opposed to privatization and increasingly starting to not just support, but articulate alternatives to privatization and, you know, remunicipalization being, being one of those things. So, you know, private sector unions were decimated in the neoliberal era globally. In some cases, public sector unions have survived that and, and, and even grown, become larger um, in some places. So, you know, they're, and they've been very effective in particularly the debates on, on remunicipalization and, uh, you know, individual unions, as well as the sort of umbrella unions, uh, you know, right up to Public Services International, um, coordinating, you know, unions around the world on, on, on these messages. So I think the, the remunicipalization movement and uh, research and discourse is as strong as it is today, uh, in large part because of, of what unions, public sector unions have been able to do in terms of mobilizing resources in combination, of course, with, with NGOs, um, you know, notably NGOs like Transnational Institute um, and then academics, you know, the, the academics, I think have played a relatively small role to date in this. It's been labor and, and NGOs, but so labor has been absolutely critical. Whether that, you know, how, and if that translates down to grassroots membership, um, you know, it's unclear. I think, you know, uh, well, there really hasn't been in-depth research to to know. Um, I think the average public sector worker probably would have concerns and be worried about the potential privatization in their job. You know, whether they have a, you know, a, a concerns with, well, what does it mean for the commodification of water and democratic control of water, et cetera? I, I'm not sure. Having said that, I just took my students uh, to a trip to the water treatment plant and the sewage treatment plant in my city over the last two weeks. And in both cases, uh, the person doing the tour with us uh, unprompted talked about, you know, what a disaster it would be if they were to privatize water services in my city. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think as there is amongst the general public, uh, particularly on water, um, a sense that water should be public. Um, but I, you know, uh, I'm not sure that, um, that we know enough about sort of rank and file membership to know, you know, where they're at and, and whether, frankly, more could be done to kind of mobilize those voices and those insights in coordinating not just an anti-privatization movement, but, you know, where do we go next? What does a good public service look like? I think what I like from the trajectory of your scholarship is this uh, critics of the ideology of privatization. And then we think about what is it inside the water utilities. I also like uh, opening the debates about public banks, how we manage public banks. We have made uh, some discussions internally also in Indonesia about this public banks. Of course, some activists would be laughing like, no, it's even already co-opted by the logic of uh, profit making. 
and then we should go to cooperatives, you know, but of course we we do believe in also cooperatives, but but you imagine of this kind of public banks and cooperatives would put a, a good team together. I mean, public banks, when we talk about public banks, we still kind of, you know, still rely on uh, state power, state institutions, mm-hmm. right? And then, uh, yeah, some activists say, no, it's already co-opted by by all this uh, national uh, capitalists. We should rely on a cooperative, true. I mean, I also mm-hmm. like this idea of cooperative in like smaller scale uh, water management system, but still, I mean, uh, how much it will not crash down from a bigger player again? So is there any scheme that kind of combine how public banks would work with community uh, cooperatives? So maybe this is also one of approach that was also promoted by TNI, for example, the not public-private partnership, but public uh, community partnership mm. in this sense. Yeah. Sure. So, I mean, my approach to any public service is there's nothing, in, never anything inherently good or bad about it. Public services are a constellation of all kinds of political, social, cultural, economic forces, and they're fragile. Um and they can turn on a dime from being open and democratic and to being very authoritarian. Um, and you know, their approach to you know more Keynesian versus neoliberal approach to to development. So um, you know, we always have to look at the governance structure and dynamics uh of, of these institutions. And you know, this is the work that I'm mostly in, involved in right now is. To what extent do state-owned public banks uh, operate in progressive ways to finance public water services? And there, there are some really, really good examples of public banks that are um, you know, dedicated to building strong public water services and, and other services, some which are in fact directly supportive of remunicipalization and have fan, uh, financed um, the move towards remunicipalization, notably in the energy sector in, in Germany, the paper I'm just working on right now. But uh, we also know state-owned banks can be very, very different. I mean, state-owned banks are now you know, financing Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. Um, they continue to finance coal-fired electricity generating stations. They you know, finance water services that are, you know, uh, serving the interests of of industry and and not low-income households. So, you know, my approach to research is really to try and find what we think are relatively, quote-unquote, good examples of of a public service and a public bank is a public service and and try and learn from that. You know, what is it that that they're doing well? What are they not doing well? How could that be improved? To what extent is that transferable to other locations and 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 trying to draw lessons from that um and there's nothing again nothing inherently good or bad about the scale of a service you know there's this this kind of fetishization of local which i i understand i get it that you know yes if something's local and the office is down the street from me and you know and i might know the person involved there's something you know at a scalar level, which makes it easier to engage. 
Um, but at the same time, sometimes, you know, these smaller institutions just don't have the resources or the skills to scale things up in, in the way that's required. And you need, you know, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars to mobilize things for, you know, rapid climate change and dealing with health issues. So, um, and, you know, you can have more open and democratic, large scale public entities. And, you know, they're good and better examples of that. So, um, so you know, I, I think the same thing applies to, to finance, right? That a local, more cooperative kind of uh, public bank might be more democratic and, and accessible, but, you know, it, it, is it going to provide the kinds of change that, that's needed at scale? The one, you know, you, you can have crossovers and I'm, this is, uh, I'm still new to this, relatively new to this debate on public banks. And so uh, listeners who know more about this, uh, maybe I'm missing out on some nuances, but, you know, the Sparkassen Bank system in, in Germany, for example, is this kind of combination of local, locally embedded uh, community oriented public banks, but have a national presence. And I think you know, hundreds of billions, if not well over a trillion dollars in in, in assets. Um, and so, you know, in some cases, you can have this kind of combination of local engagement, but scalar capacity uh, to, to mobilize, um, you know. And, and again, you know, we're facing a climate crisis that, you know, we're not talking about, you know, decades to resolve this. We're talking about years to to make a serious impact on on you know decarbonizing our economies, and so you know sometimes there's also a trade off between you know making decisions that make sense in because of the urgency and you know in in listening to what everybody has to say. Now that's not you know I, I'm not promoting shutting down voices by any means, but you know sometimes uh, we need to mobilize quickly and. The key here is is mobilizing in a way that is is not just what capital has private capital has to say, but a, a broader sense of you know what's more equitable and democratic and sustainable from from the grassroots and um, you know and, and sometimes trade offs need to be made about process and voice over you know just mobilizing quickly and I, and I think. For better or for worse, the climate change issue is an example of that because you know we're going to need to make some big, big decisions and mobilize big investments in, in this transition um, in, in ways that you know again for better or for worse, sometimes we're going to let have to let big national and you know cross national institutions make decisions. David, I think what you have said is quite instructive for our research agenda and our research community. I think um, I'm very happy to have invited you to this conversation. I'm sure that we will have to continue more. Fantastic, I really enjoyed being here, thanks. <laughs>